Welcome to the Made for People podcast series brought to you by Driven by Design Award Programs. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me as my co-host on this series is Kirsten Mann. Kirsten spends a lot of her time with other product management executives, and she's taken the opportunity to interview them and bring to you the stories about how they're made for people, how the projects that they're working on are made for people, and how also the outcomes that they're creating are made for people. But enough of me, over to Kirsten. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of chatting to Gibson Biddle, former VP of product for Netflix and also former VP of product for Mattel, product coach and mentor extraordinaire. Thank you for joining us today, Gib. You're very welcome. Nice to be here. And so you've been doing Product Management Festival. That is true. And you did a couple of talks on product leadership, culture. What's kind of been your highlights and takeaway from this festival? From the festival, what I've loved is PMF is very focused on bringing product leaders together and helping them to connect with each other and helping to move the craft forward. And so... That, that's been a great part of my experience as well. And yes, I've done a bunch of talks and I've done a bunch of workshops as well. Um, you know, I, I love to travel the world, but at the end of the day, the thing that I like the best is meeting the people in these different cities. And now I'm learning about Europe. It's, it's really interesting to hear the journey that different people take into product leadership roles. And it's something that you've talked about a bit before, but really in thinking about the transitions you made into your ultimate role, and even when you've done um, past that at startups and things, you're helping kind of being a CPO at different startups. Um, what do you think have been the key things that have really helped you make those transitions? I didn't think about it this way at the beginning, but at some point I evolved. I think product people are products. And so at some point I got the news flash that I was a product and I could think about how I would package up and position myself. I would find ways to experiment with those ideas and then I would have feedback systems to help me understand if I was on the right path or the wrong path. And, and, and I would have various hypotheses. So you know, as I look back early in my career, the question was, do I want to be a marketing leader or a product leader? And I, I switched from marketing into product. Uh, and at Electronic Arts, I made that switch, and I started as an assistant producer, uh, you know, as back at the bottom of the food chain. But I love building things. And then later, the question, do I want to do entertainment or education? And I love to do both. Another question, did I want to do a startup from scratch or find startups that I could help to scale? Was I interested in being in, in an even bigger company? And the answer is I love looking for startups with a proof of concept that are ready to scale. So those are just some examples of some of these career hypotheses, if you will, and, and the results. Uh, and then my feedback system, I've always had this sort of board of directors, a combination of peers and mentors who help me to be self-aware. Because no one is self-aware. You gave an example when we, we did a bit of an acute and A yesterday and um, you mentioned that you'd always thought your next step was going to be being CEO. That was true. And you, your board of directors actually advised you that was a terrible idea. Yeah, the very specific uh, piece of feedback. One of my mentors, his name is Irv Grossbeck. He was a buck a year professor uh, of entrepreneurship at Stanford. And he said, hey, Gib, I'm going to tell you something you may not like. And I sort of buckled my seatbelt and he said, I think you're too nice to be a startup CEO. But it was really my response. Like I felt 
like relieved, uh, you know, and I thought in my career at some point you evolved from running product to being the CEO of the company and he was giving me the license not to do that. So he was incredibly helpful. Like He, 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 he saved you a bit of pain along exactly. the way. Exactly. You know, otherwise I would have banged my head against a wall for five or ten years. Well, that's not a bad thing to be told you're too nice, right? Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, and it, I mean, yet, by the way, I'm sure there's some wonderfully nice CEOs. So, But I think that the feedback was, he could have said it a different way. You, you know, you don't have to be a CEO before you die. We're seeing that where companies have embraced, um, you know, human-centered, mature product creation processes. Do you think it makes it easier for product leaders being in those companies because you don't really have to educate your board and your exec about the value of product creation or you always think it's requiring education? For instance, boards are largely comprised of financial people. Um, and so when I'm talking to boards, I'm usually nicely reminding them that I care a lot about the business, building shareholder value, and I communicate largely through data and numbers. Um, so that's an example of know your audience and talk to them in ways that are relevant to them. So at a board level, if I'm talking about product strategy, I'm very clear about the metrics and the data, and I'm very clear that, yes, I want to delight customers, but I also want to do it in a hard-to-copy, margin-enhancing ways. You know, and, and my reason is to develop profits is so that you can reinvest in building an even better product in the future. Um, but that's that's the lens I look through when I'm talking to finance people on boards. And And what about the rest of the exec? It depends. I mean, we're all humans with different skills and different things that excite us and, or bore us. You know, for instance, if it's a marketing leader, then I'm I'm talking, you know, I'm being clear with them. The marketing leader's job is to define the brand, and my job is to build a product that brings that brand to life. So I'm really clear about who does what. But again, that's another example where uh, I take a moment to think about what's important to them, and then communicate in terms that, that make sense for them. Product management, you're generally, you feel like you're in the middle of the company. Um, so, you, you know, you have to be good at talking to CEOs and CFOs and then marketing folks and then technology people. Um, but at the end of the day, it's about your developing consumer insight, taking these ideas from outside the building, from customers or potential customers, bringing the you know their wants needs dreams and wishes into the building and then figuring out how to build stuff that really makes it come true for customers and that's hard how have you helped organizations become truly customer and user centric so what mechanisms and things have you used to take an organization on that journey yeah so so my thing i usually frame it in with the phrase customer obsession and the way my coach, like, if if I'm trying to determine if a company is truly customer-obsessed, I'm really looking for essentially five things. The first are data sources. So the, there's four sources of data for consumer insight. There are there's qualitative. You could do usability. There's surveys, asking them what they think. There's existing data, digging in the dirt, you know, that to, to look for patterns and trends and, and how people are using your products today. And then the fourth one is A-B testing. And, and that's, you know, very powerful, especially in consumer tech companies. And then the fifth thing I look for is essentially theories and hypotheses. A product strategy 
you know, is trying to answer the question, given all that consumer insight, you know, what is your plan to delight customers in these hard-to-copy, margin-enhancing ways? And what kind of systems have you implemented or, like, dashboards and things to continually get that shared understanding alignment? Yeah, so two ways. Um, first, I, I, you know, honest to God, I call them e-metrics. So at Netflix, there were 50 different uh, screens, you know, different metrics that we would stare at on a Monday morning and see what was changing and what things we didn't understand, what what have you. So I call those e-staff metrics. And then the next is to make sure that anything that's learned in the building, those results and learnings are shared broadly within with it, throughout the organization. For that last thing, I would do these often monthly strategy meetings in each swim lane or squad or pod of a company, but I also would do these quarterly product strategy meetings. And that was the place where you would reflect on results and learnings, make sure the broad team understood any insight that would help them to be successful, uh, and then also would be sort of making these decisions about how much to invest or not invest in the area, depending on results. And that was called the quarterly product strategy meeting. So I love the movement we're currently seeing in industry to become really outcome-driven over output-driven. Now, have you seen this also reflected in the product companies that you're kind of coaching with and, and talking to? To be candid, I've never looked at the world that way. So you haven't seen, I suppose what we've seen, especially in large corporates, it's very much about delivery. And, hey, we're delivering a lot of these things and aren't we doing really well versus what value have the things that you're actually delivering, generating? Yeah, I guess the way I've avoided that is for any effort or feature or project, um, there was real clarity around what metric we were trying to drive. Um, So, for instance, at Netflix, big picture, you're just trying to improve retention. You're trying to minimize the number of folks that cancel every month. You know, at at startup, 10% of the customers would cancel every month. Today, that's 2% cancel each month. But that, and that, by the way, that it's really hard to move retention. And because of that, we would have proxy metrics. And these were metrics that were much more uh, easier to change, much more sensitive, if you will. And the idea was if you could push a proxy metric in the long term, that was demonstration, you could move retention. So, for instance, when we launched, launched streaming, that the proxy metric was percentage of members that, that watched at least 15 minutes in the course of a month. We launched that at 5%. You know, two years later, probably 35% of members were watching at least 15 minutes a month. And then today, I'm sure it's like you know, 95%. I, my guess is the proxy metric at Netflix today is percentage of members that watch at least 20 hours in a month. But my point was any project, any tactic was focused on moving a proxy metric. And the, that proxy metric was d- designed to, you know, our theory, our hypothesis, if you move that proxy metric, you'd, you'd, you'd move in that camp the big, the big example, which was retention. And it's interesting with that, like a lot of product leaders find themselves in companies with lots of, they've inherited products or, and that are often disjointed, right? And um, everybody wants them combined into a coherent platform and a coherent strategy. What tips do you have for somebody in that situation to ensure that the users and the customers are at the core of what they're doing? Is it coming back to this these metrics? So when I first joined Netflix, there were probably six product managers, each doing their different thing. And I, I, I did a little exercise with them and I said, okay, you know, I, I, I stood them all up together and I said, 
Okay, I'm going to be a new member coming onto Netflix, and I, I want each of you to talk to me about what you're trying to do. Uh, and and they got my point right away because you know the first one said, "Call the 800 number for help." The second one said, "Add at least three titles to your queue." The next one said, "Rate lots of movies so we can understand." And and they they quickly got my point, which was that we were sort of overwhelming the customer and we weren't being thoughtful about how to approach um, our members. Where I got to was dividing in swim lanes. Each of the swim lanes had a proxy metric. Um, in my job, or my hope, was always that a customer could never see or perceive our organizational structure, um, that it felt like a seamless experience. That's a very valuable point. Like a lot of it is reflected. Often you see an organizational structure in their Absolutely. products. Absolutely. Um, but but I also wanted to give each of these product leaders a discrete, I call them swim lanes. Each had the one proxy metric they were going to move or I was going to kill them. That was a joke. <laughs> and um, and then I had to do occasionally just a little polish to make sure that the customer wouldn't see the, 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 the lanes, you know, the buoys between each of their areas. Tell me about um, a company besides ones that you've worked for, and besides Apple, Amazon, and Airbnb, that you think has really nailed the experience, both with great product and end-to-end um, customer service, all the rest of it. What what stands out to you? A couple of things. Maybe I'll, I'll do some goods and some bads. So I do a lot of writing. You know, I'm trying to share thoughts and ideas around the world in a leveraged way about how to be more effective leaders. The one thing that's really kind of funny to me is LinkedIn is actually doing a surprisingly good job. And it's, you know, it's kind of an older site. It's a little bit messy and dirty. But at the end of the day, you know, if I write something on LinkedIn, it it gets picked up by a very broad network. It gets shared broadly. I get tons of feedback. And it's really been surprising me. Um, whereas, you know, Twitter, I Still, you know, Twitter hasn't really figured out how how exactly to position itself. Although I I, I like it because it's it's a it's a cleaner, more well lit place than LinkedIn. And then Medium, I've been writing a lot there, um, but I feel like things are slowing down a little bit. That they are doing the necessary business model experiments. That it's blocking the users now, isn't it? It it is, and 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 it's hard for me. They invite me to be behind the paywall. I say yes. I don't I don't get any money from it, but I say yes because I know they're going to promote me more aggressively. Um, and I know that that promotion of stuff to help build the business is also um, hurting. Uh, my distribution, if if you will, of people who aren't paying, and you know, you know, I see the the cries of out the outcry on Twitter, and I'm like, you know what? At the end of the day, Medium, they have been delighting me as a writer. They they make it really easy for me to write. Um, you know, I've got Grammarly looking over my shoulder to help with my syntax and my spelling. That's neat. It's integrated in the product, uh, but they also need to build a business. Um, and so I appreciate and understand that they have to make the business model experiments. Anyways, I've never said this before, but I'm actually giving props to LinkedIn, kind of old school. But it's doing a reasonable job at personalization and help, helping me to connect with people all over the world. 
and helping me share ideas and, frankly, uh, helping me find and discover new ideas. So, Gib, final question. What legacy are you hoping to leave? At the end of the day, it's really exciting and hard to be a product leader. Um, you know, the job changes every five or 10 years with new tools and technology. It's radically different whether you're a consumer or uh, an enterprise company. It's radically different if you're at a punk startup or if you're at a large organization. But at the end of the day, people are building stuff to, to dent the universe. So I'm no longer engaged in, in building a company to dent the universe, but I am trying my darndest to give product leaders the tools, the technology, the frameworks, the ways of thinking, the mindset that will help them to do a better job building products that dent the universe. And that's really, for me, it's all about teaching. And the tricky part about teaching is how do you do it in a leveraged way? So I've been experimenting with writing, I've been experimenting with videos, with talks, with workshops, with webinars, any number of ways that, that I can try to be helpful to other product leaders in a leveraged way because I only have so much time and I also like skiing and backpacking and all sorts of other things. Well, Gibson Vidal, it sounds just what you outlined there. sounds to me you're a man after our own, our own heart where we're all about working to create a better future. And I think what you've just said there is going to help product leaders create better futures. I hope so. But thanks for having me.